Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 4th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you, if you are or want to be or will be in South Florida on April 6th, to join us for Commentary's second live podcasting event where you will be with me, you will be with Noah Rothman, you will be with Abe Greenwald, you will be with Christine Rosen, and one of the first of our special guests, Dan Senor. Uh, at Commentary's live podcast uh, in the afternoon of February 6th in Palm Beach, Florida. To find out details, go to commentary.org slash live podcast. That's commentary.org slash live podcast. You can be present as we do a podcast right in front of you. You can ask questions. We'll have some fun. Who knows what we'll do? Maybe we'll do commentary podcast trivia. We might have a drinking game. You never know commentary.org slash live podcast and yes they are here with me again today as they will be on april 6th executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john um so uh good news this morning uh rare piece of good news (laughs) these days uh uh, really great job numbers building on last month's really great job numbers. So it's not only clear that we have uh, that uh, everywhere in the country, people are moving past the pandemic to some degree. Uh, clearly hiring and employment are, are moving past the pandemic as well as the workplace repop continues to repopulate itself and people uh, continue to uh, go back into the work workforce. It should be noted that while we are talking about an amazing surge of jobs, we are still a couple million jobs under where we were before the pandemic started. And so if you hear a Biden administration apologists talk about how he has brought happy days here again, uh, he might deserve some of that credit were, were the job numbers actually wildly greater than they are now. But right now we are just somehow getting back to par and we are not even at par yet. And so, um, we should resist the temptation. Not that I don't think that uh, people who listen to this podcast aren't capable of resisting the temptation of giving credit where credit really um, isn't due. Uh, In some ways, you could say that some of this is happening despite behavior and actions of the Biden administration. Nonetheless, uh, it's, uh, you know, can't hurt Biden, may not help, but it couldn't hurt. uh, And it doesn't hurt, uh, at least in um, at a time of incredible international uncertainty to know that uh, at least uh, domestically, we are somehow uh, we are we are getting back in some sense to some kind of macroeconomic equilibrium, even as inflation remains a huge problem and uh, and other other things are going wrong domestically. Um, so uh, we keep waiting for the uh, we here on the Crushing Morosity podcast keep waiting for the uh, you know the other shoe to drop in the form of things turning uh, pretty uh, badly against uh, Ukraine uh, in the unfolding war with Russia. And um, it looks like that is beginning to happen as the, uh, as the, not only the Russian convoy, but as the, as various Russian forces uh, start converging on Kyiv from, from the East, from the West, uh, from the North and, and from the South and, uh, with the possibility of really encircling the city and then uh, choking it off, and then who know doing what? Who knows what kind of damage? Noah, wh- where are you? Uh, what are you? Uh, what are you seeing in your uh, in your uh, study of the maps? Generally, your impression is correct. Although I think you've attributed a little too much momentum to the northern advance. Northern advance seems pretty well stalled out, um, but the southern advance is moving uh, rapidly. And the city of Mariupol is well encircled. Uh, Kharsan uh, has fallen. <clears throat> and um, all eyes are on Odessa, which is essentially the, the last major port on the Black Sea and would ultimately cut off the Ukrainian state from the ocean. Um, but the heroic uh, resistance by uh, Ukrainian fighters continues to stall their advance out in the north and particularly in the in around Kiev and to a lesser degree in the uh, in the eastern part of the country actually uh, last night if you were paying attention to the to the war there was a uh, people were transfixed by this assault on um, a nuclear facility 
in the south central part of the country that was on camera. There was this um, live security camera that caught the, the whole battle um, live. And it was a rather harrowing thing to watch. Ultimately, it has fallen. And the fog of war is just too thick to even know what's going on there. There's reports that um, the, the place has been wired to explode. There's reports that the uh, nuclear technicians uh, that are manning the, the uh, facility are um, making statements under, under, under duress, literally at gunpoint. So we don't know really what to believe there. We can ultimately conclude that it has fallen. But American commanders do believe that Ukraine uh, still maintains, uh, it still contests its own airspace, that Russia has not um, fully taken control of the airspace, that Moscow has committed 92% of the forces that it uh, amassed along the borders of Russia over the course of three or four months uh, to the to the battle. So there really aren't many uh, reserves uh, available to int- introduce into this conflict without calling them up from, um, you know, who knows what hither you know, to for portion of the country is, you know, uh, where they're stationed. So um, we're we're not achieving stalemate. Russia has the momentum, um, but it's slow going uh, to a degree that I think it probably will eventually in the coming days compel intelligence analysts who estimated that this country would fall tactically within Russia's control within four to six weeks to revise their estimates, perhaps eight weeks, perhaps 10 weeks, perhaps two months, perhaps five months, don't know. But I would would not be surprised if we see continuing resistance uh, four weeks from now, six weeks from now. Abe, um, we've been having offline conversations about uh, the changing, the ever-changing nature of the response uh, on the West uh, when we see what's going on uh, with all these, you know, videos, cameramen, people there, and all that, and um, and I think there is a real question—the question that uh, make discomforts Noah, but nonetheless is a real question—that if we start seeing really, really, really terrible things happening to Ukraine in these video, after a week and a half of of the world and sort of the West falling in love with the brave of the Ukrainian people falling in love with Zelensky, um, understanding that sort of Ukraine is entirely in the right and Russia is entirely in the wrong. Uh, and without, with very, very, very little shade of gray anywhere to be found here. Um, and, uh, will this, uh, hard consensus that, uh, there's really nothing the West can do to help the Ukrainians with their struggle because to do so would require us military. I mean, aside from trying to get materials in and all of that, aside from, um, you know, because of, because of the uh, Russian uh, nuclear uh, capacity, um, is that really going to hold? I mean, I, I just wonder. Uh, but I just where, say, uh, go ahead. Yeah. The question discomforts me too. Uh, yeah. Not just Noah, um, but I am, I'm torn on it. Discomfort everybody, yeah. right? Uh, I'm torn on it both in terms of what I think could happen and in, in terms of how I feel about it. Um, I, I, you certainly, I'm getting the sense, even though it's not coming from official quarters and it's not coming from uh, m- many more leaders, uh, American politicians, than it than than it had initially. Um, but there is a sort of call on Twitter, in media, a little more along the lines of, are we really gonna just sit here and let this happen? Um, that, that sense is growing. And there's another problem inherent in, in not responding more forcefully for fear of escalation. Again, a fear I completely understand. But the other problem here is that, uh, so we are all rightly concerned about Putin's having nukes and about Putin's um, maximalist approach to this this military, what's what's turning into a a semi-debacle for him. Um, But this means if that concern completely overrides our inclination to do something more forceful, that we're sort of acknowledging that anyone with a nuke can blackmail anyone at any time, any other state, um, including states with nukes. Um, That's not going to end well. It won't end well, but how is that different from the status quo? That's acknowledging reality. No, No, here, here's, here's what I was, here's what I, where I was going with this. 
again, it, it requires you to imagine that we are not in the same emotional condition, say, next Wednesday that we are today because the Russians squeezed the pincer and they and they really let themselves loose or not next Wednesday, two weeks from Wednesday, the, you know, a week from Wednesday. It doesn't really matter. Um, and that we're watching this in real time. Christine, we're watching it in real time. We are seeing thousands of Ukrainians being killed. We're seeing children dying in that children's hospital that is, you know, in, in, in grave condition as it stands right now in Kiev. We are seeing all of that. And at some point, the question is whether the American and the Western tide of opinion goes from, well, you know, we, we love them, we support them, we're going to get everything we can to them. Of course, we can't really go to war for them. We can't. Um, to we can't just sit here and do nothing while tens of thousands of people are being murdered in, an, in, a, in a cause for which there is absolutely no even con- remotely considered argument that the cause is just. Well, there's two. It's interesting because I, I, I agree with Abe that I have also sensed a kind of raising of this idea of are we are is it possible even from a strategic standpoint that not getting involved you know nato just said they're not going to do a no-fly zone we've talked about that on the podcast as well how that's an escalation but there are a lot more people now saying okay but if we don't deal with him now is he going to stop what is what is ending this conflict even look like more people questioning that but i'm also i've also been following with great interest the other front in this war for that putin is facing and that's at home Another big protest in St. Petersburg yesterday. Um, you know, there's reports that in some of the Ukrainian cities like Kherson and others that they've the Russians have seized that they're already filming propaganda videos pretending that the Ukrainians are welcoming them. They're clearly trying to get a hold on the narrative at home because Russians aren't all on board with this. They are they've shut down everything that isn't state controlled media, um, but. And I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know how much still gets through to the Russian people. I imagine a lot more than used to when there was an iron curtain and no social media. So the question of whether he's going to have a lot of um, either active hostility to this war at home and have to deal with that, as well as his billionaires, which and oligarchs that we talked about yesterday, um, that's another problem for him um, that we can continue to put pressure on with sanctions. Yes, but I... The question I have, and I, of course, I've been reading some of the more um, uh, very uh, not at all optimistic uh, former Russians on this, who are saying what what Abe raised, which is where does it end? If we don't step in now, won't we still be fight? Won't we have to fight him down the line in another territory or in another uh, time, not of our choosing? So here's an example of the sentiment that I think you're trying to isolate, John. And besides the fact that you know you're seeing this kind of weird. A reaction against uh, you know bars that serve white Russians and Moscow mules, where that's that's where they're like, no, it's Ukrainian now. They're going after in Canada restaurants are saying, you know, we can't serve poutine because it sounds too much like Putin. That's hysteria, and it's a sort of thing that can, for real, and can actually catalyze the kind of ill-considered response that you are discussing here. And we're seeing, I think, a more sentimental, emotional approach to this conflict uh, from the State Department and the United Nations mission that is not reflected in the rest of the executive branch. You had uh, Linda Greenfield, Linda Thomas Greenfield, our UN ambassador, accuse Moscow of crimes of war involving uh, the use of banned munitions in civil civilian areas. And today, the United States Embassy in Kiev saying that uh, it is, quote, it is a war crime to attack a nuclear plant, um, casually accusing Vladimir Putin of executing war crimes. Um, to the extent that we're invest that we're you know they're being investigated already in the international criminal court sponsored by the UK we're a party to that um, first of all this is a first uh, the president and the Pentagon both were asked this question both of whom said no it's too soon to determine that um, so there is an incongruity here that is being absolutely picked up on by the very worst people we want to pick up on it that our government is not on the same page and. Two, that we are closing off an avenue to de-escalate this conflict. We are raising the stakes for Vladimir Putin in a way that we could quite possibly regret. Because like I said in the other in the podcast the other day, we're talking about uh, the, there's two, way out of, two ways out of this for you in a cage or a box. 
And that isn't, we don't share those stakes. The stakes are lower for us than they are for him. And that's the precise opposite of what we want to do. We want to raise the cost of intervention and to the point where they are, they're outweighed by the benefits of withdrawal. We find ourselves on the horn of an interesting dilemma where um, you, you, what, what you're saying here is very rational, um, but that um, we get to this point because people fetishize diplomacy so much. What you're saying is we need diplomacy at this moment. We are at we're we're in a position in which we need to find a third way. Just to clarify, the, no, I'm let not me saying, let me finish my I'm point. Not saying we need diplomacy though. No, no, you're no, you are because you're saying he needs to be. He's either in a cage or in a box, and we need to get we need there needs to be a route out for him that is neither, and ultimately that is a diplomatic route. By which I mean not that you know that we have sweet reason and everybody sits down and everything is wonderful, but that we need to have a path outward for him. That doesn't mean that he's boxed in. And that is a negotiated path using, you know, Western power and all that. But that one of the reasons that we're at this point is precisely that people didn't take seriously just how grave the threat was and thought that magically uh, sweet reason Putin could be led to see sweet reason by measures being taken, you know, in international organizations and that sort of thing that weren't, that weren't going to do the trick in changing his mind. And so in a weird way, we see the problem with the idea that diplomacy and military strength and, and, and the, and the capacity to sort of express yourself militarily. Um, there's an often a desire to separate them. And in fact, they have to go in tandem. If Putin had been afraid of us militarily, he would have been in a better, we would have been in a better position to push him so that he did not get into the position in which he is either in a cage or in a box. Yeah, just um, to clarify he, my views. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying I'm not saying you disagree with me. I'm I'm yeah. trying to make it's not a necessarily larger, that yeah. we were we we you know only appealed to him with with carrots. Yeah, Vladimir Putin was an instrument of political utility for a bunch of administrations prior to this in, in Syria and Iran. We needed yeah. Russian cooperation, undermining our abilities to isolate and uh, and change his his attitudes. Right now, to get Vladimir Putin to understand that his objectives will not be met is there needs to be pain. It's not the right, time but the pain, right? But but look, ultimately, uh, what we're discussing here is that uh, whatever deterrent factor we had against Putin to keep him from going to to, to Ukraine failed. He no longer believed uh, that the that the risk was higher than the reward. Now he's a gambler, and so gamblers, as opposed to prudent people, will obviously calculate the risk reward. Uh, in a way that bal- that 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 leans ho- much more highly toward risk than most than most other people will, but uh, we let our deterrent degrade over time, and we did it in various ways. That's where we're at fault. Not that we're at fault because we didn't do it, and we have we we, we are absolutely no moral ob- moral responsibility for anything that he has done here, and the kind of arguments of John Mearsheimer. And 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 people like that are 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 so cravenly disgusting that I hope that it causes people to go back and rethink any idea they might have had that these people who express this had any sweet reason when they were talking about other matters. But uh, he no longer believed that we were that we were a, a serious threat to him in a way that would lead him to say that it's unwise for me to do this. The obvious one being the ancillary cost of what we did in Afghanistan, that we're a paper tiger, that we no longer have the heart. We, we don't want to fight. We don't want to we don't want to defend our interests in this way and that we can eventually be weighted out and pushed out. And that's who we are. And Biden basically said, I don't want to fight wars anymore. I'm done with that. And Putin heard that. that that's the biggest one. But then we have cuts in defense spending. We have the way that Trump talked about NATO we have all kinds of different things, <clears throat> all of which represented a degradation of our deterrent. And at the very least, not talking specifically about the next week, but at the very least, the only way he's going to get out of the cage or the box 
once again, is not just if we offer him a carrot to, to go a third path, but if the deterrent is reasserted somehow. Now, it's very hard to assert it once he's, <laughs> once he's made his move and broken the international order. But uh, he needs to believe that the cost is going to be higher than him doing more. Well, and that was why it was very odd. We forgot Crimea because this Jen Psaki was actually right. trying to defend the current Biden administration's strategic decision making by saying, you know, he wasn't charged when this happened before. I'm like, that's not the that's not a positive statement. It's not what you think you're saying. So there, there's that as well. I mean, he you know, he actually has experience with Biden in a role that that had some decision making abilities and clearly right. doesn't fear that deterrent from him. Just as a counterfactual way of, of coming at your question, John, if I think I understand the question, uh, I'll tell you this. If Trump were president, I have no idea what he would do. That's not what I'm going to assert here. But if he were president and he was doing more or less what Joe Biden is doing, there would be an enormous coast-to-coast -coast wave calling for us to, to, to put up a no-fly zone and, and, and who knows what else. So I think so much of this has to do with how it plays in our domestic political theater. And it's sort of hard for me to figure out where that is at the moment and how it affects uh, uh, these kind of opinions because Biden is not the kind of figure that anyone is terrible, I mean, some people, but very few are terribly eager to defend. So it's 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 not he, he's not as polarizing. So I don't know exactly. I got to pull I got to pull back from that or sort of push back on it, because one of the things that we're seeing here in terms of public opinion, if you can believe the way public opinion is measured in, in, in polls like this, is a reassertion of a conventional Republican idea, Republican ideas about strength that had degraded over time and that, uh, you know, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the nat cons and their essentially assertion of a neo-isolationism on the right. Um, but that, you know, Republicans are like, we are not being tough enough on Putin and the and Ukraine. Now, that was not something that was predictable a month ago. It was not something what we saw in, in American public opinion toward Putin from 2016 onward was a move on the right toward a more favorable view of Putin that he has completely shattered and a reassertion of the classic Republican view that if there is a problem in the world uh, and, and, and we are being faced down by, you know, a, a tyrant or whatever, um, that um, American weakness might be a factor in the fact that he felt free to do what he was going to do. And I don't know that Democrats would have taken that view. They might have said in a humanitarian way that we needed to have a no-fly zone in order to protect the, the Ukrainian people, which fundamentally is what we would be doing if we had a no-fly zone anyway. But I don't know, like uh, Biden is responding to his own part. And if you look at the polling, everybody supports the Ukrainians in the United States. Everybody does. But this idea that we're not tough enough and we need to get tougher there is still a partisan divide on that, which Republicans are much firmer on that point than Democrats are. But, you know, I, I, I take the when when partisanships, the way partisanship can shape these opinions, I, I, I have to take them with a grain of salt because I'm thinking about our post 9-11 period when liberals and Democrats hated Bush for the war in Iraq, hated a lot of them, they though they went, would deny it at various points, hated the, the war in Afghanistan too. Um, but what else did they fault Bush for? Not responding to warnings about 9-11, right? So they had no problem being sort of pacifist after we were attacked, but we should have somehow been uh, uh, gone into some sort of preventative military posture to prevent the attack. Well, and there is some movement even among the Democrats, because there are some uh, reports today that Pelosi and a few other Democratic leaders in Congress are pushing for more energy sanctions, more than what the Biden administration has signaled it wants to do because of the concerns about domestic energy costs and whatnot. So if that continues, I mean, if you do see some more hawkish uh, nudging by Democratic leadership, that's going to have an impact, I hope, would hope on, on how Biden is thinking about this. 
But I just don't think that that's hawkishness in the way that I'm 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 thinking about it. And I mean, like what Germany did, what Olaf Scholz right. did, right? right? Which is what Biden would do. What, by the way, what Carter did uh, as a result of the of the um, invasion of Afghanistan in 1979-1980 was announce that he was going to seek a significant increase in the defense budget. People think of the defense budget increase of Reagan as having been the you know, the birth of the idea that the defense budget needed to be increased. Carter called for an increase in the defense budget um, to counter, uh, you know, sort of rising Soviet ambitions in 1980 and at the end of 1979. Like that was a that was a real thing. Biden, if Biden is standing here saying I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But he doesn't say, um, look, we're in a more dangerous world. Putin could move on Latvia. We don't know how things are going the Chinese are looking at this and thinking, you know, and hungrily eyeing Taiwan and stuff like that. And we just don't have the capability to handle all of this at once. And we need to show, demonstrate our seriousness. Germany has just called for a large increase in the defense budget. We need a large increase in the defense budget. If he doesn't do that, then then there's then he will not be responding seriously in this effort to get a deterrent going. If Biden were next week to say, you know, we need to increase the defense budget by $200 billion. I just, I'm just pulling this number out of the air. I have no idea what number it should be uh, in response to Russia, because we need to show, demonstrate our seriousness and, and restore our readiness and do stuff that we have to do that we, 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 blah, blah, blah. Like that's a message that Putin could hear. Um, Choking off, you know, imposing more sanctions one assumes that, you know, he's now all in period. Like he didn't know it was going to be this bad, but what's he going to do? You know? And in any case, by the way, he'll always find a market for his oil. That's the, that's the tricky part. Like, yeah, oh, we're going to sanction. I, frankly, him. I think you're wrong on both counts. I, I oh, really, just okay. to be frank. Um, okay. You, you can't can find a buyer for Russian energy right now. The prices are rock bottom. Everything must go. And it is very difficult to find somebody to purchase Russian oil up to and including the, the Chinese marketplace for a variety of reasons, in part because it's very difficult to do business in Russia right now. How do you right. process a transaction? It's literally yeah. impossible to process a transaction. So that's one. Two, I think you might be shortchanging the Western response in a way that uh, under that, that isn't how the Kremlin sees it. For 40 years, a stable a predictable, not stable, a predictable, however destabilizing relationship between the United States and Russia was proxy warfare. We armed insurgents, they armed insurgents, we went to battle with each other in proxy theaters. We're engaged in something similar to that now, but it is not covert and it is not proxy. We are directly arming a combatant in a declared war against Russia. That's new. It's not something we've done before. 14 nations are engaged in this. And that's yeah, something they are, the Kremlin but... is gonna change that changes the Kremlin's thinking. Because it's, okay, well, it's very new and very direct. Look, none of us is a military planner, but it, all you have to do is look at the map and see if the Russians, uh, you know, the Russians are not only encircling Kiev, um, they are working their way around to do what they can do to close off and choke off supply routes for that materiel. If we're not going to fly it in, which we're supposedly not, because there's no, no flight, we don't want to engage with the, so we don't want to engage with the Russians by the air. We have to get it in on the ground. If they choke off every, if they do what they can to choke off every entry point or a lot of the entry points, you know, on the, on the, on the land borders and they get control of the, they get control of the coastline. Um, our ability to supply them is going to be very limited. Like, you know, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be as, as, as easy as it sounds or as the, as the way we're, we're talking about it. Now, maybe they can't do that. Maybe it's too, maybe they really have used up a lot of their men and they don't have more and they, and they won't be able to do this because Ukraine is so damn big and the borders are so damn long. Very big. And look you at know, a map. All of Western Ukraine is way over to, towards NATO, where the NATO border states are. Right. As but far they, away but, as you can get. Right. But you can close off the NATO borders if you really want to. I mean, again, it's a question of manpower, you know, and will and determination. Um, uh, but uh, they can make it harder for us to resupply uh, than we realize. And of course, if you don't have anybody to resupply to, or if the capital falls, 
yeah, then you're resupplying, you're supplying a resistance. And we did that in Afghanistan, obviously, for 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 a decade. Um, but that was a much different set of circumstances. Um, and I don't know. I'm just saying, like, you can see, I think, in policy terms, that we have lost our, you know, that the, the story here is a failure of NATO and American deterrence. It's not our fault, but it's, it, you know, Putin decided that he had less to worry about from us and NATO. And maybe he miscalculated. Maybe it's the pain is going to be just so severe, you're not even going to believe it. And he will be cooed out and all this. By the way, um, what is it, what is everybody's view of, of Lindsey Graham, you know, sort of invoking uh, Stauffenberg and the, you know, the uh, the plot against Hitler or the idea that, you know, somebody needs to take Putin out on Twitter, which seems to have caused a lot of, um, you know, panty uh, twisting, uh, you know, on the part of uh, of of our of our Solons. Um, like every person who's looking at this hasn't said the same thing in private conversation. That's what I was going to say. He said what we've all been talking to each other about, like, boy, wouldn't that be great if someone would just from the inside get rid of him? But it, it is the mock horror with which that comment was greeted was kind of interesting. And I wonder if any of them have heard anything that one of the functionaries in the Kremlin or a Duma member has said about the United States and what they want to do to us. It's all just talk. It's nonsense rhetoric, and it turns the temperature up in a way that the Kremlin understands because they turn this dial all the time. It's not going to change any attitudes. It's not a strategic blunder. It's not going to make the Kremlin any more nervous or paranoid no, than no, they I already are. No, no, I think the are. idea is that it was in bad taste. It's in bad taste to talk about, you know. Oh, I saw people being like, talk about encouraging the situation. I mean, he's one senator out of 100 He's one member of Congress out of 535. Like, once again, I just think this is all, it ends up being, oh, please, that's so vulgar. Oh, how can, you know, it's like, give me a break. What are you talking about? Everyone's saying, you know, the easiest solution here would be for Putin to be assassinated. I mean, everybody knows, like, of course, you know, um, all we're hearing is that he, this is his war. He's the one who wants it. Every, we saw everybody around that table uh, at the, you know, at the, you know, the day before they went in and how terrified they all looked and how none of them looked like they looked green at the gills, like that they were being uh, governed by this crazy man who was making this terrible decision. So, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that while everyone sort of wrote what let a Republican senator, a hawkish Republican senator say, man, that would be great if, you know, somebody, you know, remember, Stoltenberg didn't work. It didn't happen. Stauffenberg didn't didn't work. So. Um, it's not really the best <laughs> analogy. There's also a cost-free um, element to people who are saying, you know, we need a we need a no-fly zone for humanitarian purposes or what have you. It's not going to happen. So it's it's a very low stakes uh, commitment, verbal commitment for you can, that you can you know f- fall back on when it becomes valuable to you to do so. I'm now going to play the Biden card, Noah, and say, talk to me in a month. Talk to me in a month. Because right I will now, in the will event no that we're all zone. still here, because your okay, su- yeah. your suggestion leaves that one up in the air. I I I, I look. I who who the hell knows? That's the, all I'm going to say is who the hell knows. But I am going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. When running a business, HR issues can kill you. And I'm not talking about you know because of a plot. I mean they can kill you theoretically because they'll they'll torture you and torment you and drive you crazy and eat up all your time, wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. That's why Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created. It's specifically for small business to provide a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. Your dedicated HR manager, available by phone, email, or real-time chat. Onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel any time. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E.com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E.com slash commentary. Um so we had this big leak or whatever it is from the uh, January 6th uh, committee um, uh, documents uh, 
emails uh, and the argument that uh, since Trump was told repeatedly by data scientists and people within his administration, including Bill Barr and others, uh, that, that he had lost the election, the election had not been stolen, and that there was not enough widespread fraud to say that he had, that he had won the election, that he knew or should have known or had every reason to know that the argument that he was making, that he the election was stolen, was, was um, uh, a lie. And it's a knowing lie. He was lying knowingly. He knew he'd lost and that therefore he is uh, potentially prosecutable on the grounds of uh, committing a fraud. Not um, a leak, though, right? This is a court filing. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a court filing. I apologize. Okay, right. And, so, the, and the burden of proof is much lower for for the filing than it would be to actually prove uh for a prosecutor to actually prove what they're claiming. This is in order to get a judge to look at some of the evidence they have in private about a subpoena that has so far been resisted. So that, like right. this is, I think it's a lot of people- basically a warrant, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. And, they, and, and the burden of proof here is quite a lot lower than if, right. if they brought a case. Well, we Trump. don't even have to talk about the burden of proof in, in, in one sense, which is uh, there are two major elements of this. There's Trump knowing or should have known that what he was doing was a conscious and knowing lie. And uh, therefore he was, um, you know, he was acting in bad faith, uh, was not making a good faith argument. Um, that is impossible to prove. That is literally impossible to prove. That goes to what his state of mind was. And unless he says, I knew that it was a lie and I did it anyway, I there I don't know how you get anywhere near a courtroom uh, with with it with a case like that. I think it's especially impossible to prove because I don't think it's true. Right. Well, I, I think, think ultimately he, yeah. he absolutely believed it. I mean, don't forget, he was walking around thinking, according to a whole slew of private reports, that he was going to be reinstated last summer. Right. Right. Let, we need to talk about why there's an almost impregnable case for his state of mind being that he, that the election was stolen. He was laying the groundwork for the idea the election was stolen for years. Why? Because every change made by the Democrats, everything that was done to liberalize voting uh, during the pandemic and all of that, he said was bad because it was unfair because it was, it was designed to help Democrats get more votes. Right? So uh, by definition, if laws and rules and procedures are changed that have the effect of giving his rivals uh, an easier time of it, the election is illegitimate in his mind, in his mind frame. Um, that's not a knowing fraud. That's not a cynical fraud. That is, it can be sugar. It can be preposterous. Problem is, I know tens of thousands of people who believe it. And maybe they're all mashuga and they believe in something preposterous, but you're allowed to believe in things that are not true. There are many religions in the world that people believe in that, uh, you know, I'm part of a small minority religion. I think most of what the rest of you believe is not true. I'm in no position to indict you for believing something that is not true. And you cannot prove that he doesn't that he didn't believe it. That doesn't mean, by the way, that all of the evidence that is now coming out is not valuable and why the committee should have existed and why Republicans should should, you know, not have played this game of refusing to go along with it and all of that, because we do need to know we need to see what is coming out. But I'll give you the second thing that I think annoys me or troubles me, which is that um, uh, there are these emails. It's John Eastman, the now fired Chapman University professor. Uh, uh, a legal pseudo scholar who was making the case that uh, Trump, that uh, Pence could refuse to accept the electors, or do, he had this whole you know stratagem for for rejecting electors, having alternate electors come in, having a different count going on, and then announcing that Trump was president. And they have these emails, and and uh, uh, Pence's counsel says. Uh, because of your bullshit, we're now under siege. This is ridiculous. And Eastman's saying, look, I understand that we're talking about breaking the law a little bit here in relation to the Electoral Count Act, but there's a higher purpose and stake. And that that somehow Eastman is in legal jeopardy, according to this court for whatever, there's some theory that Eastman is... Eastman has the right to argue that you should break the law because of a higher law. 
He's not a public official. That's disbarment. If you're an attorney no. advising, knowingly break the law, I think it's subject to disbarment. Well, first of all, we're not talking about disbarment. We're talking about criminal prosecution here. I'm not talking about, I mean, that's what- I understand, but that's the implications that you're raising. I don't give a shit whether Eastman is barred or disbarred or barred or can practice before the court. None of that matters. That's not a matter. That's a, that's a, that's a, the, the point here is, that you are allowed it could also to be make, criminal conspiracy, which is the allegation. It is the not. It cannot be a criminal conspiracy if he believes that the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional and that breaking it is not is is, is he, you're allowed to say you can break the law. It is not a criminal conspiracy to say you can break this law. What is the conspiracy? He doesn't have any role in a conspiracy. He is writing emails to somebody. He is not paying for it. He is not being paid for it. He wasn't working at the White House. I look. I loathe him. I've loathed him for years. I mean, I but, but just to tease out, idiot. just to tease yeah. out your line of thinking here. Yeah, if he's saying that he understands, and you're saying that he understands a course of action violates statute, and does it anyway. That's very different from saying this doesn't violate any, any statute, which is why you should do it. What I mean is that um, you can say something like, I know that I shouldn't be giving my mother with cancer marijuana because it's illegal, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is that a criminal conspiracy? I mean, if you then, you know, you say it while you're buying marijuana, I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying like- Does it rise to the level of prosecutability? Well, that's my that's the whole point. That's that's all that matters here. And Eastman has free speech rights and he can say, I don't believe that an unjust law should be followed. Like, I'm sorry, you know, the notion that we're not going to prosecute people for saying, even if they were somehow informally advising the president of the United States for saying that you don't have to follow an unjust law. Really? Is that how we're living? In the United- I, I don't look, I don't care. This is all as I said, it's a court filing. But uh, once again, the machinery of this psychotic, you know, what Trump did, I called for his impeachment. I think that he, he should have been impeached and removed from office even after he was in office for what he did on January 6th. I think he did encourage it. I think he was, he incited it. I do not think he incited it or encouraged it in a way that was criminal. I do think, because he was president of the United States, that the proper penalty would have been his impeachment and removal. And obviously he was impeached and he wasn't removed. Um, but going now to some argument that you can prove that he knew and did it anyway, I mean, issue the report, sh- lay out all the facts, let, you know, let the lunatic, let Preet Bharara and Larry Tribe, and I don't know who else, make nonsense arguments that suggest that he should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. See if you can get a, see if you can get a grand jury to indict it. What do I, I I don't care. Just this is a silly that what's going on here now, it seems to me is silly and it is, and it harms the case of the irreparable damage Trump does. And it will make him more of a martyr to Republicans. If it looks like they're just going after him relentlessly over, over, over things that he earnestly believed and they will boot this will boomerang in their, you know, in their faces will help him get the nomination and might help him get reelected. So congratulations to everybody who is making this nonsense argument, whoever is working on that January 6th committee. Okay. I don't want to be like a monologist here. So, well, I will the one one to just to add one point to that, uh, that I've noticed in terms of the the rhetoric that's being used uh, not just by media folks who are predictably, you know, gleeful at the idea of Trump being uh, indicted. It's all about, we can't, if, 
if we don't get Trump, if we don't prosecute Trump, the message to all Americans is that there are some people who are above the law. And it's just like those of us who remember the Clinton years, I start cackling when I hear that. I mean, of course, some people are able to escape the full effect and impact of the law if they are rich and well-connected enough. That's the story of our justice system uh, and, and many other justice systems, not just our own. But I do think that the the existential stakes are being raised kind of you can see it happening in the way that this is described at the same time that they're not actually delving into the details like we've been trying to do here and sort of ask the question like is this something that that would uh, a jury would actually look at and and think that he did um no i mean there's a lot of a lot of doubt about that and he as you've long said john his entire career as a businessman was about sort of plausible deniability. He's pretty careful, actually, about avoiding, you know, putting his finger right on the button for something that that might be criminal. And, and everyone around him tends to get indicted, but he hasn't. The, what, what they're doing, and Trump's enemies have this uh, addiction to doing this, is validating his claims. He's been going around saying, uh, this is a crazy witch hunt for me. They don't stop. They get, and what has happened time and again, right? So the, the Russia collusion case, garbage. Uh, the Manhattan case against him just fizzled out, right? And now on the immediate heels of this, they're picking up this wispy, gauzy, I think, frankly, ridiculous claim that 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 he is 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 criminally culpable because he he knew that he lost and and went ahead anyway. Well, but it's a pursuit of a warrant. It's an it's an attempt to get a, a, a essentially a warrant. It's an attempt to get a judge to side with them. It's not an indictment. It's not before a grand jury. It's definitely not being submitted to a to a court for to adjudicate guilt or innocence. It's merely a, to a, to. Uh, to, to okay a fact finding mission. Let's see if they put any of this in a warrant. Right. I mean, that, yeah, but that's all the court of public opinion. It's being treated that way in the court of public opinion, though. I think is is the problem. Yeah, but but you it's know, only see if a judge even bites. Well, right, but it's only a filing because that's all they have the power to do. I mean, they don't. They're they're not responsible for for anything beyond that. I mean, look, it's very simple. They're going to issue a report. They're going to. There's going to be this pressure on. Biden and on Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to come up with some kind of indictment. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of criticism and rhetoric are launched at them if they don't, if Garland doesn't indict on the basis of whatever claims are made by the majority in the or by, by, by the report. Um, uh, and uh, it, they're now putting themselves in the position of going, having a civil war whenever they release this report, because the issue will not be what Trump did, because we all know what Trump did. And uh, if you want to make the argument that he didn't incite the riot, you can go ahead. Uh, he certainly liked the riot, and that's all you need to know, uh, or you should need to know. And if you are retconning everything we saw on January 6th as it was happening live, uh, congratulations on allowing yourself to live within a reality distortion field that is deeply unhealthy and not not good for your you know not not good for for the um, for you as a logic as a person who believes in logic and obvious conclusions based on on the evidence of your eyes. Um, but I, I just think like. Just let it out, release the report, make the narrative of what happened based on all of that testimony. History will tell the tale. And, and I just, by the way, sorry. Trump was punished. Trump was punished by losing the election. People somehow, that is not enough for the left because they want to, and I, I again, I think he should have been, he should have been convicted in the court of impeachment, but they want to take him. They want to bury him. They want to cut off his head. They want to throw him in the garbage can. They want to make sure he never runs again. And, and in the end, uh, what they're doing is they're making it more likely rather than less that he will run again to prove them wrong. And they're making it more likely rather than less that he will win again. Can I add a grim observation that has sort of tangential to this? 
<clears throat> reading um, interviews with uh, man on the street interviews in Russia, um, reflecting the completely bizarre information environment that they live in, where the Russian people, whether through intimidation or genuine con uh, genuine conviction, believe that Moscow's uh, acting in self-defense, that the Ukrainians are bombing themselves, that Russia is only engaged in the Donbass. And you see all these Trump-loving Republicans saying, my God, how could they possibly believe this stuff? Uh, anyway, I mean, it's a very weird position because I think it would be a terrible thing for this country and its future and all of that if Donald Trump were, you know, if 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 the result in 2025 were that the January 6th commission that 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 should have been doing an important act of historical fact finding ends up becoming an element of his reelection. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, this required of them. Uh, very little, they have required very little of themselves in terms of pursuing the claims and charges that they have case against Trump responsibly and soberly and with good care, um, because uh, that's what you should do if you're pursuing the president of the United States and you should not, you know, be doing it like, you know, Michael Avenatti and effectively they're Michael Avenattiing themselves if they don't sober up and if they don't go in a, in a in a slightly different direction. And I say that as somebody, again, I'm going to repeat this again. I believe that what he did on January 6th was unconscionable. I believe he bears moral responsibility for what happened. I believe that he should have been, he should, the impeachment was just and that he should have been convicted and that conviction would have barred him from further uh, office holding. And that would have been the right thing. And it didn't happen. And so, uh, but this is not the right way. Whatever's going on here, even if it's not, doesn't, as, if it doesn't reflect what the final result will be, then fine. Then it was just a sort of thing of the moment. Um, but I, I sort of suspect that they won't be able to contain themselves when they release the final report. Anyway, I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Uh, the Batman is really boring. I'm sorry to report. It's 25 hours long and really boring. And uh, so, but you're probably going to go see it if you're a moviegoer. So don't blame me if you're bored. Have some nachos. Uh, anybody have anything fun going on? No? Not this weekend. Okay. <laughs> so we'll be back on Monday for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.